We rolling, David? David sent me this joke this week. I got a kick out of this. Local preacher went to visit a member of the community and invited him to come to church Sunday morning. However, it seems that this man was a producer of very fine peach brandy and told the preacher that he would attend the church only if the pastor would drink some of the brandy and admit doing so in front of his congregation. The preacher reluctantly agreed and drank up. I hope you know that wouldn't have been a problem for this preacher. (laughs) Balance and self-control. Right? That's what we're to be examples of. Can you stop that tape for just a minute, David? You see, that's going to be on tape. Stop this tape, and then we're starting up again. All those people that listen by tape are going to be going, What did he say about that alcohol? (laughs) Okay, so that preacher, he agreed and he drank up. Well, Sunday morning, sure enough, the man visited the church, and the preacher recognized the man in the auditorium from the pulpit, and he said this, quote, I see Mr. Johnson is here with us this morning. I want to thank him publicly for his hospitality this week especially for the peaches he gave me and the spirit in which they were given. (laughs) Isn't that sneaky? That's biblical too. Wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove, right? Well, my friends, I want to share something with you a little bit this morning. I don't want to be sneaky. But I want to do, what I, I do want to be though, is as straightforward as I possibly can. In fact, I want to be frank with you. What I'm about to say is going to sound very arrogant, but I hope you know I don't mean it in that spirit. But we're going to be looking at a passage that the church has just messed up for centuries. You say, Frank, that sounds so arrogant. I mean, who are you? (laughs) Who are you? There's all these incredibly world-renowned theologians for the centuries. Who are you to stand there and say, you've missed it? I hope you understand, it isn't about me. It's about the Spirit of God. And the truth of His Word. That's what it's about. And if we will just let the Spirit of God teach what He wrote, we're going to see that it's a glorious passage. It's a wonderful passage. That it's not necessarily a passage of doom and gloom. And I trust you're going to see it. I really do. I've been praying for that all week long. So why don't you join your hearts with mine right now? Our Father, this is your word. And I don't know of a man on the face of this planet that would want to come to your word and and mess it up. So I don't believe that we've done that purposely. But I do believe it's happened. And I don't want it to happen here today. So we pray that if we're, what we're going to look at today is truth, that your spirit would knit it on the hearts of every person, that we could come away with a, a confidence that yes, indeed, it is truth. 
and that we would allow the truth to set us free. If there's any error here today, Father, I pray that Your Spirit would take it and snatch it away from the hearts and minds of Your people. Because we don't want error. Error brings bondage. But we do want truth. We pray because we know that Your Spirit has to accomplish this. It won't be accomplished by someone's teaching ability. Nor will it be accomplished by the mind of man receiving Your Word. It will only be if Your Spirit opens our hearts and minds to see it. So it's Your Word. You're the teacher. You've got to help us understand it. If you don't, we will miss it. So, Father, You're the one that's on the hook. And I like that. I'm not on the hook. And Your people are not on the hook. You are. So, Father, do what You've promised to do. And set Your people free with the glorious truth of your word. So be it, and let every saint say it. Amen. John chapter 15 is where we are, in verses 2 through 6. So let's read it together. We've just got hours to go till Jesus dies. Less than that before he's taken away from his dear, dear friends. So this is serious serious business. This is deathbed legacy, people. The most important words you can possibly utter to the ones that you love so much. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. But without me you can do nothing. And here came the heavy. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. There's no other way to say it. This is a very serious passage. Perform, or you'll be cut off. We better understand what the Spirit of God is saying here, or there's going to be some very, very serious consequences in our lives in terms of spiritual bondage, in terms of guilt, and fear, and anxiety. Well, last time together we focused on two conflicting views, and we'll review them very briefly just to bring us up to date. One is the view that very obviously here people would say Christians are here losing their salvation. They would say that the language supports it, as we just read through this. Every branch in me, that is intimate connection, does not bear fruit, you will be disconnected from me, cut off. And so people have come to this passage and looked at that and said, well, obviously then Christians can lose their salvation. That's what the language is saying. They support it with the context by looking at a person named Judas who just got removed. 
Judas is in fact the example. There's a problem with that, however. When you and I looked at John chapter 13, it became very clearly implied by Jesus that Judas was never saved. When you looked at the language of that passage, he said, you are clean already, John 13, but not all of you. Jesus speaking to the twelve, you're clean already, but not all of you. That seems like a reference to Judas, and the Judas is not necessarily one of the twelve. Not that he had lost his salvation, but that Judas had never had it to begin with. Because Jesus didn't say you were clean. He said you are. Secondly, we saw that the very word eternal life, and here's a novel idea, is eternal. That it goes on and on and on. If you can lose it, then it wasn't eternal. It was potentially eternal. Jesus never says that. He says, you got it? It's eternal. It'll never end. And we saw the passage from 2 Peter chapter 1. What a glorious passage. Our salvation is kept by the power of God. The truth is, our eternal life is secure based not on our ability to hang on to God, but on God's ability to hang on to us. Praise His name. Thank you, Father. That's right. Praise God for that. Some of you ought to be in the loud amen corner. And then thirdly, the language. The language of verse 6 was not that these branches wither, die, and then are cut off as if they lost their salvation, but it's very different. They're connected and God cuts them off. So there wasn't a a backsliding Christian talked about here. They were connected to the branch and God cuts them off. Then they wither and die. Language was very specific. And so we said no to view number one. Very obviously, it's not Christians who lose their salvation. There's too many problems with that view. Well, then there's a second view. These are professing Christians that were never really saved. They were never really connected. Again, this view points to Judas as an example, this time pointing to Judas Judas correctly, right? Because he was in the group, but he was never in Christ. You are clean, But not all of you. Judas was never clean. And so that's support for that view. A second view, the New Testament affirms that this problem does indeed occur. All you had to do, which we did last week, was go to Matthew chapter 7. And those people on the wide road of professing Christendom, saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff for you? And what did Jesus say? Depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you intimately. Yours was a false profession. You never really surrendered. You sat in a church, but you never got into Christ. You took up space on a pew, but you never received me for my person and work. You were a fence sitter. You did a religious duty once a week, but you never embraced who I was and who I am. The parable of the wheat and the tares, very clearly, existing together. John chapter 8, remember that passage, to the Pharisees to those that believed in Jesus. But then they took up stones to kill Him. Obviously, it was a false belief. 1 John, they went out from among us, but they were never of us. They were never a part of the body of Christ. And so this certainly has some weight, isn't it? Professing Christians, but they weren't genuine. But my friends, we saw last week that there were problems with that view too. Jesus did not say here... Every branch that appears to be in me. He said, every branch in me. Key words, 
Take your pen, if you would, in your Bible and circle those words, in me. John uses the phrase 16 times, my friends, and every single time he uses it, it's intimate connection. Can that be said of an unbeliever? Can it be said that an unbeliever is intimately connected to Jesus? Mm -mm. It's stated to the eleven. You are the branches. But none of those branches were ever cut off. If it was going to be false believers that got cut off, it would have been better to make this statement when Judas was there. But when he makes it to the eleven, none of them ever fall away. It doesn't make sense. Thirdly, and this is the biggest issue, the parable addresses the now. When are we supposed to bear fruit? Right now. And what does the parable go on to say? If you don't bear fruit in the now, what's going to happen in the now? Verse 6. You're going to get cut off. So it's talking about now. The problem is those parables of the wheat and the tares and, and the, parab- the passage in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, did not we do? That all occurs when, my friends? At the end of the age. But this parable is talking about a separation and a discipline and a judgment that occurs present tense. So they're talking about two different things. Very obviously, he's not talking about false believers. This is not believers that lose their salvation. Let's sum it up then. This is obviously not false believers that are separated and burned. Very obviously then, this must be believers. Believers that are punished for their poor performance, but still remain saved. Did you hear that? Obviously, in this context, we are talking about people who must be believers, but they are punished for poor performance, yet still saved. There it is. How then... Do we harmonize that with the love and grace of God? Steve, would you close us in prayer and let's go home? I think you'll see why as we move through this. And I just want to let you know ahead of time, we're not going to finish today. Okay? But we'll get enough today to encourage us. And I think it's going to be very special. First thing we have to do is remember what we're dealing with here. And what we're dealing with here is a parable. And whenever you come to a parable, you must remember. Did you hear that? You must remember that a parable has how many thoughts? One. And whatever you're going to do in your interpretation of a parable, it must fit with that one central thought. And the one key thought of this parable is what? Not salvation, but bearing fruit. It's not professing Christendom. It's productive Christendom that we're talking about. So the purpose is to bear fruit. And there's a process in that, and that process is abide. So very simply, what this parable is talking about is that you and I are to receive the life of Jesus and then release the life of Jesus. Just like a prism. A prism.
by light, and what happens? It just reflects and radiates that light in a panorama of a rainbow around the room. The body of Christ is a prism that radiates and magnifies the life of Jesus Christ. That's what you and I are to be about. Does that all make sense? Then let's go to verse 2 and dig into this. How are we going to harmonize this then being believers that are punished for poor performance and harmonize that with the grace and love of God? Let's read verse 2 together. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. Now stop right there. That's just about as far as we're going to get. Every branch that bears no fruit, he takes away. Now, my friends, there's no other way to say it. That sounds harsh. Doesn't it? You don't bear fruit, Lottie, I'm going to take you away. Let's do a little personalizing. You don't bear fruit, Jeannie, I'm going to take you away. You don't bear fruit, Johnny, I'm going to take you away. Does that sound like a God you can jump up in his lap and say, thank you, thank you, thank you? No, it doesn't. Just about everyone, my friends, assumes that this is a reference to judgment. Translators and commentators alike. Now, why do we do that? Why do we naturally assume that this is talking about judgment? First of all, look at the context, if you would. Is there anywhere in the context here that you see the issue of judgment? I'm the vine. My father's the vine dresser. All of a sudden, every branch of me that bears not fruit, he takes away? Well, Frank, there's a context of judgment in verse 6. If a man abide not in me, he's cast forth as a branch, withered, gather them, thrown in the fire, and they're burned. There's a context for judgment. Sure there is. But my friends, I want you to think about this. That's a context that works its way backwards. That is gaining the context of verse 2 from a passage that hasn't even been spoken yet. You don't do that. You don't use verse 6 as a proof text that judgment is in verse 2. Make sense? So let's do something. Let's take out the chapter verse divisions because they're put in there by men. And let's just go back into chapter 14 and let's just read this thing a little bit. And you can go back really as far as you want, but, but we'll start maybe in verse 25. These things I've spoken to you being present with you, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father is going to send in my name. He's going to teach you everything. And He's bringing to your remembrance everything I've said to you. And peace I leave you. Peace I give you. Not as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. You've heard it said, I'm going away. But I'm going to come back. And if you love me, you rejoice in that because I'm going to the Father and, and my Father is greater than I. And I've told you before it comes to pass so when it happens, you'll be able to understand and believe. I'm not going to be long here with you. Oh, the Prince of the world is coming. And, but He has nothing in me. He can't win. As the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gives commandment, I'm going to go do. Get up. Let's go to the cross. See? 
And then somewhere the conversation continues. I'm the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Have you seen any judgment yet? And then all of a sudden you don't bear fruit. Whack! Does that make sense to you? It doesn't fit. Be honest. Don't let what men have told you for centuries influence your reading the Word of God. Let's say it, my friends. Judgment is foreign to the context of verse 2. It doesn't belong there. Do you see that? Why then do we assume it's judgment? Why do we assume the worst? May I suggest to you it's because we have a sin consciousness. Because we have a thing called a conscience that convicts us of things we do wrong. And how many of us do things wrong? How many of us have a past we'd rather not have? Wally, you didn't lift it. You don't have a past that you'd rather not have, brother? Oh, you're just thinking. Okay, good. We have emotions that are stuck on the issues of guilt and shame. How about this? Preachers that remind us of our pasts and that we don't do right. Amen. How about the law, which was given by God as a wonderful thing to condemn us? Isn't that a glorious thing? You better say it's glorious because it's the only way you'll run to Jesus. Is if you have a need. We're not anti-law here. If anything, we're the people in the world who are the most pro-law. Let's use the law. Beat the daylights out of unbelievers with it. So they'll run to Jesus. But you don't have to beat the daylights out of the saints because they've already got Jesus. All you got to do is lead them to Jesus. That's how the law works. And then there's an enemy. He's an accuser. And he stands every day, Jerry, to, con- to condemn you. You no good, filthy wretch. I've been wanting to say that for a long time. No. <laughs> That's what the enemy does to you, Jerry. That's what the enemy does to you, Sandy. He does it all the time. God couldn't love you, Philip, not with what you've done in your life. And he'll make it present tense, too. You call yourself a Christian, John? Ha! I see how you treat your wife. I see how you treat your kids. You call yourself a Christian. This is what he does. And then there's an entire world we live in that's, that's just inundated with performance-based acceptance. I'll love you when. You're a success if. But if you don't, you're a failure. You're no good. And this is what you and I live in. Is it any wonder that you and I have a sin consciousness? We just naturally are like sponges that receive wrath and condemnation. In fact, when I got here and began to teach the love and the grace of God, the people of God, a lot of them couldn't hack it. They wanted to come to church and get beat. And I wouldn't give it to them. Beat me, beat me. Oh, thank you, thank you. I feel better now. Come for your weekly beating. The Son of God already got beat. It's over. The sin issue is over. What did he say on the cross? It is, say it, finished. To telestize. Glorious word. Do you know what it means in the Greek? It means it's finished. It's over. We live in the resurrection, my friends. We don't live in the cross anymore. 
Our Savior lives. And He lives in us. But we've got this sin consciousness. It influences our interpretation of the Word of God. I do this very often in counseling. I do it when I'm discipling. I do it when I'm talking one-on-one with somebody about the New Covenant. I do it when I speak somewhere else. I can't do it here because a lot of you have all received revelation already into this. But I'll do this. You know, over in John, it says, The Holy Spirit was sent into the world to convict the world of... Say it. Sin. And everybody is able to finish it. But then I'll ask this. Finish the verse. And then these people will look at me and go, like Jack Taylor says, like a raccoon looking at headlights. I'll say, what's the matter? I can't finish the verse. Why can't you finish the verse? I don't know. I'll tell you why. Because you are the product of a sin-conscious church. It's never taught you the rest of the gospel. The Holy Spirit was sent into the world to convict the world of sin and, can you say it? Righteousness and judgment. You see, if you stood up in the average church and you said, I've just been convicted by the Holy Spirit that I'm a sinner, the amen corner would burst forth into doxology. But what would happen if in the average church in America you stood up and said, I've just been convicted by the Holy Spirit that I'm righteous, that I am as righteous as Jesus is. The Amen Corner would break forth in heresy and the ushers would begin to move towards you to usher you out of the assembly. And that is so very sad because your being made righteous is basic gospel 101. Amanda, do you realize that if God didn't make you righteous, He couldn't live inside you? Because our God does not tolerate sin. Habakkuk chapter 1, he cannot approve sin in his presence. So he could not live in a sin-stained vessel. He lives in a holy of holies. So what did he have to make you in your spirit? He had to make you blameless. He had to make you righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21. We're not going to take the time to look at these. We've done them here enough. He made him who knew no sin be sin. Did that happen? Yeah. Amen. Thank you. Amen, corner. You're allowed to sit here as long as you want to, Richard. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. But let's finish the verse. That purpose clause. Why did he do it? That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If you're going to say Jesus died for you, you better complete it and say He made you righteous i got a problem saying that. I know my life. i got a bigger problem. How did God ever become sin? If God can become sin, what? He can make your little piddly life righteous. Isn't that cool? I just love that. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. All right, Philippians 3. We are made righteous by faith, not by law, not by deeds. Of course not. If it was a thing of deeds, not a one of us could say that. But Paul said, I want the righteousness which is available to me by faith. In other words, just believe God that He did what He said He was going to do and it's done. It's already done, in fact, whether you believe it or not. 
I like this one. This is so cool. We'll make a sandwich. First Corinthians 1, 29-31. Whenever you make a sandwich, what do you need? Help me. Two pieces of bread. So there's one piece right there. Verse 29. Don't boast. Don't boast in yourself. How many pieces of bread? Two. Guess what this one says? Don't boast. Well, between the two pieces of bread, what do you put? Meat. Who said peanut butter and jelly? Meat. Put meat there. The meat of the Word of God. And what does he say? Jesus was made to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. How many of you are willing to say you're redeemed, that you've been bought with a price? Then you better be willing to say that you have been made wise, sanctified, and righteous. Because it's a package deal. If you're not willing to say you're righteous, don't say you're redeemed. You're negating the work of Jesus Christ. You're blaspheming my Jesus. He did what He said He was going to do. Hallelujah. This is so cool. How about this one? Look at this. I do this too with people. If you believe, in, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. How many of you know that? And believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. What? Say it. You will be saved. And then I'll say to these people, finish the verse. Finish the next one. Next one? What's the next verse? I don't know. Well, how come you don't know the next verse? I don't know. Because you're the product of a sin-conscious church that hasn't taught you the gospel. You know the first one because the church wants to get you into the kingdom. Good goal? Great goal. But we're falling short. God wants to put the kingdom into you. So it's confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto, say it, righteousness. Isn't that awesome? Faith righteousness. I'm sure glad it's not works righteousness. Aren't you? I tell you, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of Peter Lord. Peter Lord did a tremendous message years ago called Turkeys and Eagles. And he was asking God to help him out. And he said, give me something, God. And so God gave him a parable of a turkeys and eagle. And a little eaglet fell out of the nest and he fell down a bunch of turkeys and, and the turkeys adopted him and taught him how to be a turkey and so he's eating bugs and he's you know scrambling for those and he's living down there on the ground and hiding out in the bushes and, and one day you know he's looking up at those eagles flying and the turkey comes don't look up there you're a turkey see it's dangerous to look up there see you want to fly and when you want to fly you get shot <laughs> see you're a turkey act like a turkey but the old little eagle he kept thinking no man that's not what I am I, I'm not a turkey see I'm an eagle I don't feel like an eagle. See? That's the problem. That's the church. So one day, old Peter Lord, he's teaching on this message, and he, and he was sharing the parable, and he asked the questionnaire, and this is what he asked the people there. He said, I want you to write down on a piece of paper, how many acts of sin have you committed today? And write them down. How many acts of sin on a Sunday night? And then he asked this, how many acts of righteousness have you committed today? Uh, poor old lady there, she... She wrote down these things right here. She wrote down a hundred acts of sin and two acts of righteousness. So then he answered this. What were those hundred acts of sin? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You committed them. Got a bigger problem than that. What's the Holy Spirit's job? To convict the world of 
sins. So if you can't remember what those hundred acts are, then obviously he's not convicting you. You're saying the Holy Spirit's not doing his job. See, the problem is, this woman is sin conscious. She couldn't write them down because you know what the truth is? She hadn't committed a hundred acts of sin. In fact, it was actually the other way around. She probably committed a hundred acts of righteousness and maybe two sins. Wait a minute. <laughs> the overhead's messed up. There, that's how it's supposed to be. In fact, Peter Lord cracked me up. He said, you know what those two worries? I'm assuming it was going to church Sunday morning and Sunday night. Those were the two acts of righteousness. But that's not it at all. If Jesus is expressing His life in me, I'm committing righteous stuff all the time. I got up and brushed my teeth this morning. Hey gang, that was righteous. It was righteous. I went out to the, to the kitchen and made coffee. That was righteous. Because Jesus Christ is living His life through me. We don't think like that. We think we're just sinning all the time. Sin consciousness. And so when we come to a passage like verse 2 and it's, we read, He takes away every branch of me that doesn't bear fruit, He takes away. Boy, we, we just lay hold of it like a sponge. Judgment. And I'm here today to tell you, my friends, not in arrogance, but in confidence. In confidence. Holy Spirit confidence. I have no doubt that this is not what He's talking about. No, it's not it. Look at verse 2, and you read it with me. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, the omnipotent, holy, consuming fire God takes away. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? That's what we've made it say. No, it's He takes away. Well, context, number one rule of interpreting the Bible. What's the context? Who's He? Look up at verse 1. Tell me who He is. He's the Father. He's the Father. The Father takes away. That's the Word. That Word that scandalized the Jews that Jesus introduced to the religious world. Nobody would ever dare to call God Abba, Papa, Daddy. It's scandalous to the religious world. Scandalous because it means a man, a mere man, is being intimate with God. Worse than that, it means that God is being intimate with sinful men. Father. And please, not the Father. You don't, well, your kids don't say when you come home, Dad, oh look, the Dad is here. What do those little kids say? Daddy's home! Daddy's home! Why, church, do we continue to distance God from us when it cost Him so much to become intimate with us? Don't do that. Quit calling Him the Father. As if He's out there somewhere. He's Father. He's Daddy. Abba. I've heard a lot of explanations for the word Abba. And again, theologians have missed it. You know what it is? It's baby talk. 
It was Aramaic baby talk. A little tiny kid going, Abba, 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 Abba. That's it. That's your God. That's your God. And there is evidence. Theologians have told us that there are only three times that Jesus used the word Abba. Three times in the Bible. Twice by Paul, Galatians 4, Romans 8. And once by Jesus. I don't buy it. Jesus spoke the common language of the day in Israel. And the common language of the day was not Greek. It was Aramaic. And so I think every time you see Jesus saying, Father, 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 it's not patera, like the Greek translation says, but it was Abba. I believe there's evidence that the translators couldn't handle the intimacy of God. And when they wrote the Greek, they instead of writing Abba, they wrote patera. Because we recoil from the, the intimacy with God. We think we're not being reverent. We think that we have to maintain reverence. You know what? Intimacy is reverence. It cost him the blood of Christ to accomplish that intimacy. And if you want to be reverent, be intimate. Don't distance him. Oh, thou great thine holy. No, you're denying his work on the cross. His intimacy costs too much for you and I to deny it, my friends. And subjugate him and move him away. Don't do that. Father. It's the Father. That's how He comes to a non-producing branch. In fact, we'll just practice this right here. Not He comes as a Father, but He comes as Father to a non-producing branch. He comes as Father to a non-productive Christian. And what does He do? Say it. Takes them away. Doesn't seem to fit, does it? Here's where a little study comes in. The word is iro. It can mean take away. It's used that way in John 11:39 when Jesus said of Lazarus, "Take away the stone. Remove it." However, context is the context a context of judgment. We've already seen this not. The language is it holy God omnipotent fire takes them away? No. It's Father. So why then would we want to translate the word take away when there is another meaning for that word? Circle the word take away right in the margin of your Bible. Here it comes. Guess what it can also mean? Lift up. Lift up. It is used in John 8.59 when it says the Jews picked up stones. But watch this. It's the very same root word used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 of the rapture. Our God is going to come to His church and He's going to pick them up. And we're going to be up in the air. Cool. Gone. In the heavens with the Lord. That is the same root word used here. It can be translated either way. So... You're going to translate it, Father. I love what Dan Fogelberg said about his father. The thundering velvet hand in the song he wrote for his papa. I don't know if I've ever heard a greater description of God. A thundering velvet hand. 
So are you going to translate it as the translators have done for centuries? Father, take them away? Or are you going to prefer to translate it in its context? He lifts up non-bearing branches. Lifts up. Frank, what are we talking about? Well, here again, you city dwellers, you're so uh, unfortunate for you. If you lived in the wine country where Mama lives, you could see it. A lot of vine branches of those vineyards, they get heavy and they hit the ground. And when a vine branch hits the ground, there's insects there that can damage the vine. And there's disease on the ground. And so what a viticulturist will do is he will come and take that vine and he'll lift it up off the ground and away from the insects and he'll tie it up. You saw it, didn't you? You saw it. And he lifts that branch up so that it can receive more of the S-U-N. So it can receive more sun. Do you see in the context what Jesus was really saying? You having a tough time of it? You're not able to bear fruit right now? Are you down on the ground? The thundering velvet hand of an Abba will come to you. And he will not cast you off. He will come and he will lift you up. So that you can receive more of the S-O-N. Is your burden heavy? Have you been in your life sometimes where you're so down you can't even pray? Abba will lift you up. Does that sound like God? That sounds like God. Can I affirm it? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, use some circular reasoning on you here. God calls us to encourage the faint-hearted to strengthen the weak and to be patient with all. That's what God calls us to do, church. Well, I want you to think about this. Since we are expressions of His own life, what is it that God does? He encourages the faint-hearted, He strengthens the weak, and He's patient with all. It's not perform or I'll cut you off. It's all come and lift you up. Now I hear you sin conscious people. There's a few of you here. It's okay. We're going to be patient with you. But Frank, there's judgment in verse 6. Guess what? Yes, there is. But it's in a context of patience and hope. And we'll get to verse 6 in a couple weeks. But for today, we're going to stop. Because you know what? That's enough. 
But what I want to leave you with is Psalm 1. And I don't know if I spelled this right, so if I didn't, just deal with it. In Psalm 1, he said, How blessed is the man who meditates on the Word of God. Do you know what the word meditate actually means in Hebrew? Ruminate. What's the word ruminate mean? It's the word that's used for cows and sheep when they eat the stuff and then they burp it back up and chew it 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 it to get every morsel. So you know what I want you to do this week? I want you to burp up what we saw. Isn't it wonderful to be a part of Quaveridge Church? Just burp it up. Father lifts me up. Father lifts Just burp it up and just chew on it and chew on it all week long, okay? But we're not quite done. We've got some application. In fact, I didn't put that over in the overhead for you. Just burp it up, chew it up. We've got some very specific application for us. First of all, my friends, you need to repent of your false beliefs about God. You really do. These pictures here are used by permission. Repent of your false beliefs about God. We've done this before. We'll do it quickly. Over the years, I've had people drop pictures of God. People feel that way. And when you feel that way, you won't run to God. You'll run away from Him. How about this one? Shrouded in mystery. How about this one? Yeah. You know what a tragedy it is for someone to have this kind of a belief system about God? This is rebellion waiting to happen. Because you can't run and run to God. You'll have to run away from Him. Now notice God has a heart. But you can't see the heart with the size of that club. Oh, well, this is so noble. This one is so noble. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's noble because it's biblical. But look at this. I'm not worthy. No, you're not. But He made you worthy. I've had some of these same people drop. In fact, if you have a false belief system about God, I want you to stand up right now that you're going to renounce it. Would you do that? Anybody here? There's no judgment. We're not going to look at you and we're going to praise God that you've repented of a false belief. If you have a false belief about God, I want you to stand up right now. And let's stand and just say, I'm going to renounce my false beliefs. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else have a false perception of God? You stand up right now and say, I'm going to renounce it. I've believed this for too long. It's time for it to end. I believe he's got a hammer and he's just waiting to hammer me. I don't feel loved. I don't feel accepted. It's a false view of God. It's over. It ends today. I'm going to renounce it. It's the lie of the enemy. That's one. But that's not enough. You don't have to, it's not enough to repent of false beliefs. You've got to receive the truth. Don't just sit down yet. Don't sit down yet. We're going to receive the truth. We're not going to wander around la-la land. There it is. My friends, you know who that is that did that? This is God, this person. It's the same person that did that. 
Thank you, God, for the work you've done in the life of a heart. Look at this one. This is a correct view of God. There he is. <laughs> That's childlike faith, man. Same person that did that one. You know what the ultimate true perception of God is? It's the picture that hangs on the doorway of this auditorium when every time you walk in, you're confronted with it. There it is. Right now. Father, you just pray in your own heart. Father, I repent of my false beliefs about you. I don't believe you have a hammer up there and you're waiting to hit me. And I don't believe you're disgusted with me. I believe, I choose to believe you love me. And you accept me because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Now you can be seated. We're not done yet. Because you see, you got to do something else. And that's you got to run to a father. How many of you are, have burdens right now that are weighing you down? How many of you stand up, please? How many of you feel that you, you just, you're just slugging it out? And, and you just don't, you can't get victory over some, some areas of your life? Even if it's sin. Hey, we're not going to judge you. All right? Because we struggle with the same. You've got a sin issue you're struggling with. Stand up right now. Because here's what you need to do. You need to run to Him who is a Father. You need to release your burden to Him. And you need to receive His encouragement and strength. So right now, you say, Father, I've been trying to carry a burden. I've been trying to fight temptation and sin. And I'm the branch that's on the ground, man. And I need your strength. I need you to lift me up. Because I'm tired of living the way I'm living. And I don't want to live like that anymore. But I can't do it. You've got to do it for me. I trust you to do that. I'm tired of the sin. Thank you, Father. You can say thank you because He's promised to lift you up. He said so, right? So say, say thank you. All right, you sit back down. But I got to tell you something, gang. None of this is true unless you know Jesus. And the only way you know Jesus is to open up your arms and receive Him. To those that received Him, He gave the right, the authority, to be called a child of God. So if you don't know Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit has pricked your heart right now, I want you to do something. He stood up for you. If you want to receive Christ right now, would you stand up for Him? If you feel weird about that, we're not going to make that a law. You sit where you are and stand up in your heart. And you say, Lord Jesus, I receive what you did. Because what many of us need to do is we need to receive a Father that we've never known. And the only way to receive the Father is by receiving Jesus. So would you do that right now? Just say, Lord Jesus... My life's a mess. And I need your life. I want an exchange to take place. So I receive what you did on the cross. And I receive what you did by bursting out of the grave. And I receive your life by faith. Amen. Would you stand with me?
This I know, for the Bible tells me so, little ones to Him belong. We are so weak, but you are strong. Sing it, Father. Yes, Father loves me. Yes, Father loves me. Yes, Father loves me. The Bible tells me so. Joanna Carlson wrote a beautiful song. Heaven is hearing and sharing each tear. And I know the Father is near. And he's saying this, You can belong to me. I'll cherish you. I'll treasure you. I'll love you completely. Someday you'll finally see how precious you are in my eyes. You've never been out of my sight. I'll love you for all of your life because you can belong to me. Would you be seated for just a minute and receive the love of the Father? Leslie, baby.